Happy Friday, Origin Podcast listeners. Prashant here. Today, I'll be speaking with John Orda, the general counsel at Nextdoor, which is a free and private social network for your neighborhood. Prior to his time at Nextdoor, John served as the general counsel and chief people officer at MetroMile and as the general counsel at OpenTable. He got his JD from the University of San Francisco School of Law and his MBA from UC Berkeley. We're going to chat about his career and education paths, how he got to where he is today, the challenges he faces as a general counsel, how he thinks about culture and diversity in tech, and about a blog he runs on Pulitzer Prize-winning fiction books. Hope you enjoy. John, good morning. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm great. Awesome. Friday. Uh, yeah, it is Friday. That's right. Um, well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, and it's always good to have interesting folks on the podcast. And I think you are right up there with uh, some of the more interesting people I know. Uh, why don't you give a quick background and then we can dive into some of the topics we wanted to cover. <laughs> that sounds great. Although now I feel a lot of pressure to be. <laughs> that was the point. Really interesting in my background. Um, uh, I am a lawyer, which by itself is not interesting, but I do think that I've had an interesting career being a lawyer. Um, in fact, it's funny. My, I was at dinner last night with my wife, and we were talking, who's also a lawyer, and she says, you have one of the best lawyer careers of anybody that I know. And, and I think in hindsight, I think a little bit of that is true. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to... Um, kind of find myself through a, you know, a long and winding road and doing kind of a series of, of general counsel jobs at a lot of interesting tech companies here in the Bay Area. Uh, currently, I'm the chief legal officer at Nextdoor, uh, the social network that uh, groups people together by neighborhoods. Um, and before this, I was at MetroMile, which is the pay-by-mile insure tech startup here in the city. And before that, I was with OpenTable. And there's there's more before that as well. But at least kind of the last, uh, you know, the last little while, I've had some high visibility tech startups, consumer brands that people like. Uh, it's, it's been great. Yeah. Um, those are some, you know, household technology companies. So, you know, let's go back to when you got your law degree. So why do you think or let me ask two different questions and you can kind of answer the way you want, which is when you got your law degree, what did you think you were going to be doing and why did you get it then? And then now looking back, how do you think your law degree has helped your, your career path? They're great questions. And, and I wish I could say that I had this amazing foresight to know that this is where I was going to end up, but that would be a complete lie. When I, when I, when I originally went to law school, and this is almost embarrassing to admit, but I think a lot of people are in the same boat. I went to law school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it seemed like a good way to kind of punt that decision for a couple of years, uh, still do something that people respected. Mm -hmm. When I got out, I would have a job that would pay me, you know, some amount of money, which would be great. Um, and, and so when I got out of college, the economy was not firing on all cylinders and there really wasn't a ton of things to do, uh, when you graduated. And so law school seemed like a totally viable option. 
And that's why I went. It wasn't, you know, maybe I had some kind of basic desire from watching Ally McBeal or LA Law that I thought being a lawyer would be kind of fun, but I definitely didn't have much specific targeting in mind in terms of where I thought I would end up. Got it. And then maybe that's a good segue to correct me if I'm wrong, but you also got an MBA after working for a while um, after law school. And was that part of what kind of helped your career or, or you refine kind of what you wanted to do and, and what you wanted to be? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's it's actually also a good example of how oftentimes I think my career has been more focused on what, like what I feel like doing now versus some some plan that's that's well thought out. So it's interesting that the the law or the MBA story came about because after I graduated from law school, I was an intellectual property litigation associate at a big firm. Okay. Which is which is an interesting job. So you know you do a lot of patent lawsuits and trademark lawsuits and unfair competition and all that kind of stuff, which is you know it's exciting. But it's a super tough job. Um, you you know, it's a lot of hours. I definitely spent much time sleeping in my office or, you know, pulling all-nighters. And um, and it's fine. Like when you're, you know, 26 or 27 years old, I think it, it's totally fine. But it starts to, I think, wear on you over time. And I was a fifth-year associate, and there was a buddy of mine uh, who came into my office. We were working on a case together. He was like two years below me and it was nighttime and he comes in and he goes, this job sucks. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it, it totally sucks. And he's like, he's like, I'm going back to business school. And, and you got to admit, you got to remember, this is like 1997. So the first web 1.0, um, is just now taking off. And the reason, and I remember the reason that that he he said this was we had a mutual friend who like w- did nothing. He was like a bouncer, um, but he started selling ads for DoubleClick and was like worth $2 million. And so we were like, he's like, these business guys have got it all figured out. So I said, I, I said you're really going to like throw away three years of, of law school uh, and go back and go back to business school. And he said, yeah. So I, so I got to say, like, I was kind of intrigued. So I asked him what I had to do. And he said, he had to take this test. It's called the GMAT and it's half math and half English. And I told him, you know, the English part I've, I've got, I go, but I haven't taken a math class in, it had been 12 years since I took a math class. So uh, I bought pretty much how to take the GMAT for dummies, studied over Christmas break and ended up taking the GMAT and, uh, got into Berkeley. And I still remember the day that I got in. I, it was a Sunday and I was doing some horrible project at work again. And I get this email that says, congratulations, you know, you're you're accepted to the class of 2000. And I turned off my computer and uh, quit my job and went back and spent. You walked right out. I know, it was the best. <laughs> I, like went, I like went back to school. I ate burritos and cheap food and hung out with my friends. It was the best. Yeah. That sounds like fun. So, so it sounds like, you know, your career today and and especially the job you're doing now and the the recent jobs you've had as well at Metro Mile and OpenTable, you're probably using kind of both 
degrees, right? Obviously, you're a general counsel, so you know one would assume you, that position is filled by lawyers. Can you probably, you can probably explain what a general counsel does because most people probably don't know. I probably don't have a great idea. Um, and then talk about how that's a little bit different than working at a firm, which you did before going back to business school. Yeah, yeah. You know, it is interesting because it is absolutely a combination of the two degrees. And it, and uh, and once again, and you'll, I guess this is kind of a theme as, as I go through this, it's it, that in and of itself was unintentional. So when I came out of business school, like many lawyers who go to business school, um, I, I got pinged with a lot of business development jobs. Um, so not as a lawyer. And so when I came out, I did my first startup. It was a startup called iMotors, which uh, was a used car retailer. So selling used cars on the internet. There was At the time, there was a ton of car selling websites, Cars Direct, Greenlight, uh, eBay Motors. There's a bunch of them. So iMotors was specifically focused on selling used cars. Raised a ton of money located here in San Francisco, but I was like a director of business development, not not on the legal side. Um, and that was great until about a year in that company folded. And I went to my next next one that wasn't was a technology company, wasn't really a startup. It was a company called Elon, which was an internet, it was one of the first internet lenders. So they did mortgages and home equity loans and auto loans. And I had done a deal with them. Uh, on the auto side when I was with iMotors, which is how I knew the guy who ran the, the auto group. And so after iMotors sh- shut down, I kind of went over there. Also as BizDev guy. But it was at Elon um, where I became really good friends with the general counsel there and s- kind of hatched the idea of, you know what, being an in-house attorney looks like a pretty great job. And so um, position opened up uh, at Elon and I talked to the general counsel and I said, hey, what what about me? I'm like, what if I did it? And I swear to you, it took like 30 minutes to finalize it. He said, you really want to do it? And I said, yeah. We like walked over to the CEO's office and he said, can John switch? CEO said, that'd be great. And there you go. All of a sudden, I'm now an an in-house attorney. and it really is interesting because when you're in, when you're an outside when you work for a law firm like like when I was when I was an associate at the at the big firm that I started my career at I was an intellectual property litigation associate that's the thing that I did and when you work for a firm there's usually there's something that you do you're a bankruptcy attorney you're an employment attorney you're a tech transaction attorney, you're like something very specific and you go very deep in that thing. When you are in-house counsel for a, for a tech company where the, where the law department is relatively small, you are handling issues across the board, you know, whether it's corporate or commercial transactions or IP or employment or immigration, you've got all of these different things. There's no way that you can know everything about everything. And so really what you're trying to do is uh, be the most efficient in terms of trying to figure out how do I get the right answer and how do I get the right answer for the company? Um, 
And so really that's the biggest difference, I think, between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what's the hardest part of being a general counsel? So I remember being – you have to get over the fear that you need to know everything. I remember the first time um, I became a GC, and it was at Open Table. Open Table was my first general counsel job. And I remember just thinking, there's so much that I don't know um, that it just made me, you know, it just made me super nervous. But what's yeah, real is that there's not a single person on planet Earth who is in the GC role who knows everything about everything. Just because it's such a, you know, it's such a, a broad <laughs> span of knowledge, right? Law. Uh, yeah. And once you get past that and really realize that what your job is, is not to know all the answers, but to know how to figure out how to get to the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you realize that, it kind of takes the stress off of it and it becomes more of a, a very much a, a business role, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a rule where if I run into anyone, whether they're a lawyer or anything else who says they know everything about everything, I run as far away as possible. (laughs) Those are the people you got to be worried about. Exactly. (laughs) Um, What's been different about your recent three general counsel roles and what's been the same or rather put put differently, what are the common threads across all the jobs? And then maybe there's some differences that come either from the specific management team that you're a part of or the industry that you were in? Because these are three different industries, right? And so um, there are probably differences spawning from that. Yeah, I know. It's true. Um, in in some ways, the, the, all of the companies, and I'm even going kind of even back to, back to Elon as well, uh-huh. there's some things that are very similar, like employment issues are generally very similar. Um, IP is is similar your corporate work and commercial contracts a lot of the times you're just you know it's the same vendors like every company has to have you know people who lease you copy machines or you know whatever it is there's lots of things that are are really the same um the things that are different oftentimes focus on what the company uh what the company's core thing is so if you look at kind of all of the tech companies um, there's, there's, I want to say like almost 90% of it or 80% of it is, is actually the same across the board. So employment issues are generally the same. Trademarks are generally the same commercial contracts. Like every company needs to have somebody lease them a copier or, or you've got, you know, leases for your office or whatever. Uh, all of these things, regardless of what the company does are generally the same. So there's a lot of things that you can kind of take from one to the other. Uh, Where it's different is it really just depends on what the company's core business is. So the easiest way to think about this is with Elon and uh, Metromile, which I'll group them together. And the reason I group them together is because they're financial services companies, they're heavily regulated. Um, And in both cases, regulated at the state level because uh, Elon was a lender and so regulated by state regulators um, on that side. And uh, 
Metro Mile was an insurance company or is an insurance company so regulated by the state departments of insurance. And working in a regulated versus non-regulated environment is absolutely 100% different, uh, just in terms of terms of kind of what you have to do. Uh, Open Table um, had a little bit of like the SaaS aspect to it, or like software sub- um, subscription, where we had a device that went in the restaurant that was kind of like a monthly recurring fee. Plus you had diners on the other side that were, that were paying uh, where restaurants would pay on a kind of per diner basis. So it was an interesting one in that sense. Um, But you're out, you definitely got the sales force out there kind of pounding the pavement. um, That's really driving the business, right? They're going door to door kind of selling software into restaurants. And then obviously next door is different. It's a social network. So it, it, it kind of grows its, its whole community is, um, or it, it, its whole purpose is kind of based on fostering community um, in our case around, around neighborhoods. Uh, so, you know, it's just different. Um, you have different issues that come up with regarding how do people interact with each other on the site, which you don't necessarily have at any of the other companies. Um, and, uh, and, and so I would say that's, that's kind of like the primary differences that you kind of see between them. Um, but in a lot of ways, like I said, the, the skills are transferable from one to the other. Yeah. And then what do you, what is something that you know now, given all your experience in these different companies that you wish you knew maybe when you started at OpenTable? um, in, in your role there as the general counsel? Uh, I think, well, I, I do think that, that, you know what I think? I think that I, if I, if I had known that most everything can be fixed, this is like one of my favorite my favorite, um, mantras or, or thoughts now, which is like, there are very few things in life. This doesn't even go to being a lawyer, um, in life. They can't be fixed. And I, I kind of feel like when I went into uh, my first general counsel job, I felt that the weight of the world was like on my shoulders. Like somehow I was going to screw something up that was just going to cause irreparable harm to all of those around me. Um, and and I think two things. One, I realized I'm not that important. Um, and two, uh, I realized that that for the most part, uh, you're not going to cause any irreparable harm. Um, and so I think it's almost like just stress a little less, uh, which is advice that actually should apply to all levels of your life. (laughs) Stress a little less. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, obviously in working with you at Metro Mile, I saw how important culture was to you. And I, I believe you served as the chief people officer at Metro Mile as well. And so, um, you know, given that title, obviously culture and people management is important to you. How do you think you formed this quality um, or, or the priority or emphasis that you put on it? Because you know, a lot of general counsels or lawyers in-house or otherwise may not care that much about culture or taking it seriously. So it was interesting to see you kind of marry those two things together. And I'm curious how that, that kind of came about. Yeah. It, you know, I, I, 
again, staying on theme, a lot of this is opportunity, um, opportunity that's unplanned. Um, what, it, how it came about was when I was with open table, I had, uh, I can hear the Slack notifications going crazy. I know. So sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. Um, uh, yeah. So sorry. I will <laughs> tell them stuff. Just make sure it's not, it's not an emergency. It is not an emergency. <laughs> um, uh, now I've totally, I've totally lost my train of thought. Uh, you were talking about you were talking about culture and, and yeah. how you. So, how you so I was actually, you know, almost I, I've become. I'm a big believer in my own personal creating my own personal culture, like being very uh, approachable by the people who work with me, and not being like the lawyer who sits in the corner. And so, in a lot of the ways, when I was with Open Table, I kind of took that mantle, like not in an official capacity in any sense, but just like I think it's super important to, um, you know to like be available and be approachable and, and talk to the people around you and the whole, make these connections. And, and at some point in the middle of my open table tenure, we reached a point where the, the, the leadership of the HR team had left for a number of different reasons. And uh, the group that was left was fairly junior and fairly new. Like, so they were both like, you know, they, they had just, come to open table and they were relatively junior in their careers. And so uh, it, it was, it just became a little bit of a shit show. Um, and, and I told the CEO, I said, look, why don't we do this? Why don't you just let me manage these folks for a little while? And when, uh, and then we'll find somebody to, to kind of take over the group. And so that's was my first foray into um, actually in official capacity, kind of managing the people team. So this included both the people operations side plus the, the talent acquisition and recruiting side of the business. And what's interesting about it, which is I really came in as just kind of a stopgap, originally just a stopgap measure uh, until, until we could get the, the team together. Mm-hmm. I actually really loved it. So Instead of letting it go, I just kept it. Um, hired really great leaders of the people ops function and the talent acquisition function, and then um, and then just came to actually really enjoy it. And this is this is funny coming from a coming from an attorney, but um, people often say that people are the most important piece of a company. Like it, it gets a lot of lip service, but I think that a lot of the times it literally is just lip service and, and there's not a lot of belief behind it, but it's actually very much true. And what I came to realize was the success of a company that the HR recru- and recruiting functions are much more important to the success of a company than the legal guy is. Not to say that I'm unimportant, but really, if you think about it, if you can attract the right people and then you can like keep those people and keep them motivated, keep them happy and keep them kind of focused in the, you know, on the right stuff, that's going to, that that's actually going to make your company. Uh, versus the legal side, which is is obviously important. Um, you know, you've got to have it. You've got to like dot your eyes and cross your t's. 
but it's it's more of it, it's not the thing that's going to make your company hum. So it's been great, and so that's how I made the switch, and then kept it up when I was uh, when I went over to Metromile and did the same thing, uh, which was great. It's uh, it's wonderful to kind of be in that position and to see companies grow and to really I don't know get a chance to touch uh, touch a lot more people than you do when you're on the legal side. Yeah, yeah, and you know, in the last few years, there has been kind of a magnifying glass on culture in technology companies, you know, specifically with respect to some of the quote unquote bro culture that has formed in Silicon Valley and otherwise at tech companies and some of the sexism or ageism and and stuff. And, and I want to, you know, caveat all that by saying, I think like the majority of people, the vast majority of people that work in technology companies are good actors and while there are a few bad actors or bad apples, I think those have gotten kind of undue PR. But there are some structural issues. Like I don't want to make light of the fact that there are structural issues in technology companies and in Silicon Valley. And and it's not unique to just Silicon Valley. I mean, this is true in other industries as well. But I think tech gets a bad gets a bad rap. Um, how do you think about your role as kind of, you know, whether you're officially a chief people officer or, or involved in HR, just being an evangelist for good culture, right? And, and an advocate for it. How do you think about those issues that you see in San Francisco and Silicon Valley? And what do you think some potential solutions might be? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I 100% agree with you that I think most people are good actors, but if you have a couple bad actors, they can actually take down a culture, right? It's, it's, it's one of those. It's one of those, um, I view it as kind of akin to my, to my workout, which is, it seems like I have to work out a ton to stay in shape, but if I like don't work out, like I quickly degrade. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, it's kind of the same, uh, for companies in their culture, which is like, you can have 90% good actors, but if you have 10% bad actors, especially if the bad actors are in positions, you know, higher up or positions of influence, like it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's going to be bad. Um, and that's especially then true kind of at the, at the founder level, where I think like a lot of the times with tech companies, it's just the, the culture is very much just kind of mirrors, you know, mirrors them for better or for worse. Um, and how I think that you can, um, this isn't going to be earth shaking in, in any sense, but how I really do think that you can help is really by focusing on creating a, a diverse workforce. I think it does a couple of things. I think from a business side, I think having different points of view, I think the studies clearly show that companies with diverse workforces are actually performing better than those that aren't. Yeah, but in addition, it just it just helps to have differing viewpoints in terms of how we interact with each other. And again, this is like a lesson not even for for business, but just kind of for the world in general. I think if you have people that you surround yourself with that uh, you respect and you admire, and they're different, and you're not all kind of thinking the same thing, so it creates really interesting discussions and conversations. I think. The world is a better place. Um, and, and, you know, just in terms of the workforce, I think the, there's, there's really kind of three things that I always think people want from their workplace. 
they want to know that what they're working on uh, is contributing to the, you know, the company itself. Um, they want to uh, work with people that they respect um, and like to be around. Oops. I got all sorts of things going on. And then they want to, um, uh, they want to, to know that they're growing, right? They want to know that in a couple of years, whenever they decide to move on, that they're going to be a little bit, um, they're going to be farther along in their career. They're, 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 they will have grown as a, as a, as a person. Um, and so I think if you can kind of focus on all of those things, uh, the common thread is you're really trying to help people, um, you know, be better humans. And when you do that, I think it also helps the culture. Like if you think of all, you know, we're all in this, we're all in this together. Um, and I want people around me that I respect and I trust, and I want them to grow. If you can create that, that's an amazing place to work. Mm -hmm. What are some specific things you can do? And you mentioned earlier, promoting a diverse workforce. What are, what are things that some of these tech companies can do, whether it's 50 people or 500 people or thousands of people? How can they, how can they do that? How can the HR departments, the engineering teams, the management teams, how can they make that happen? Oh, I, you know, there's lots of ways, like um, very t from tactical, tactical to kind of strategic, you know, from a, you know, I've seen some from a tactical level, uh, JDs, for example, tend to often have a lot of unconscious bias towards males rather than females uh, for lots of different reasons. So there's programs out there now that will look at all of your JDs and try to come up with different ways to make them more gender neutral. Um you know, don't have names on resumes for first passes, you know, like there's lots of things on the recruiting side that you can do to try to kind of take out what might, what might be a bias. Um, you know, what happens a lot of the time, which makes total sense. That's not like you can blame somebody for this, but a lot of the times startups in particular are, um, are started by people who know each other. Right. Like if you're going to start a company, you're going to start a company with somebody who, you know, pretty well and you trust and the whole thing. So a lot of the times you're you're going to be very similar, like because you're going to have known this person through some other means and you're probably very similar. And as you're growing, then, especially in those early stages, <laughs> you tend to hire people that, you know, right, like you're not thinking Oh, I'm going to create a diverse workforce. You're thinking like, I need people in the door and my, you know, my buddy knows this buddy and, and it's just kind of becomes very much a, well, a lot of the business is referral, which isn't bad in and of itself, but it does perpetuate this over time. Right. When people who know the same types of people keep referring those people into companies. That's exactly, that's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. It's, it's a total, you know, double-edged sword because referrals are great. Like, yeah. People who are referred in tend to stay longer. Yeah. Uh, they tend to be more engaged, the whole thing, because they usually know somebody there. Like there's lots of goodness about that. Yeah. Uh, the thing you just have to be, you know, aware of is the fact that a lot of referrals can tend to skew a company one way or, you know, toward yeah. a specific type of person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right that there's lots of little things that can add up to, to big things for, you know, tactical things that companies can do and strategic, but 
you know, from the outside in, it's good to look at someone like you in a leadership position who's thoughtful and cognizant of these things, because if we had more people like that, you know, it may tilt, start to tilt one way and, and improve the diversity and um, uh, outcomes that we're seeing at, at some of these companies as well. Like you said, more diverse companies tend to do better. So there's not just a maybe ethical or societal reason to have diversity, but there's also kind of just a financial reason or economic reason to do yeah, it. Ab- yeah, absolutely. 100%. Awesome. Well, the last topic I think um, we can chat about, and then I'll, I'll leave you to go deal with the Slack notifications and the outro music that I think started playing too early there. Um, the Pulitzer Schmulitzer website. Oh, now, yes. I came across this in doing, you know, podcast guest research, which it sounds a lot more involved than than I think it actually is, but I saw this and I scanned through, and it looks like you you do some rankings on fiction Pulitzer winners. Is that right? That is that is right. And I, right. I, I, uh, I'm glad I'm glad that you've discovered Pulitzer Schmulitzer. Uh, again, like many things in my life, it kind of started as a whim. It was uh, what happened was I'd, I I like to read. I like to read books. Uh-huh. I often found myself uh, not knowing the next book I was going to read or like not being able to figure out kind of like it, what I felt like reading. And so one day I just saw this Pulitzer list tacked up to a wall in like a used bookstore. And I was like, and I looked at the list and there were some books on there that I'd read, like that I loved, like To Kill a Mockingbird or Old Man in the Sea. Uh-huh. Um and I said, well, you know what? There's some books on here, like like the books that are on here that I've read, I generally like. So this seems like a list that I should just go through. And so I read every single book that won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction uh, beginning in 1947, right? Like I, it's just one of those crazy things that you do. Yeah. Um, and then when I got done, uh, you know, I, I then it was kind of like my kids were young and this whole thing. And I, and I was, it was one of those moments where you're like, I'm going to forget all these books. Now that I've read every single one of these books, um, I'd really like to, to kind of remember it. And at the same time, I'd always wanted to do a blog. I, I love writing as well. Um, but I always thought like, I never had a good reason to do a blog that didn't sound like just super narcissistic. Uh-huh. I said, this would be an excellent way for me to do a blog with an idea that doesn't make it sound like it's all just about me, but really it is kind of all just about me. <laughs> so, so I, so I came up with Pulitzer Smulitzer where I'm, I'm ranking in reverse order. So like starting with the book that I like the least yeah, uh, and going backwards. Um, but really each blog post um, kind of follows a, a format where there's a little story about my life that somehow ties into the book. Um, and so it, it kind of combines a little bit of a little bit of my own life, what I think about the book and uh, and kind of, you know, it, it's a good it's a good outlet for me. I got to say, I wish I could write it more. Writing is super, super hard. Well, how far? How many books have you gone through? Is this fifty percent done, or what, uh, what, I think I think I'm at number forty something. So I got like another forty books to go. Um, okay, I, halfway I, done. I've read them all, so all books have been yeah. read. 
Yeah, it's just the blog post. It's just the blog post. Yeah. I, I've got one that's currently I've been working on, and I've been working on it for a really long time. Um, and But maybe this will be the impetus to make me actually finish it. Yeah. Well, look, if, if any of our vast – anybody in our vast podcast following wants to sign up, I think you have a newsletter, pulitzerschmulitzer.com. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can get notified of the new blog posts. That's right. This will really make me finish it. I, yeah, and and that's good. I mean, yeah, we'll we'll have people sign up and put pressure on on John to make sure he finishes these blog posts because <laughs> people are waiting. Like you did it in reverse order, so you've gone through like the worst forty. Exactly, so, exactly. So it's like, people are like, okay, you've told me what not to read, but now I'm waiting for what to read. Right, and, that's exactly right. Like I I felt like the first like. I don't know, even know how many. I would pretty much get to the end and be like, don't read this book. <laughs> uh, now I'm kind of like in this middle zone where they're all books that I'm like, yeah, you know, it was all right. Like it was all right. But I'm I'm definitely not like out there pounding the pavement to get people to read them. But it's a lot of yeah. high quality books that they're all right. Yeah, this reminds me of like, you know, those like BuzzFeed articles where it's like, the hundred best but unknown travel destinations. And it starts at number 100 and you have to click for each one. So you're just sitting there clicking for a few minutes to get to like, you know, the ones you care about, the top 10 or 20. And it's just such a tease because you have to wait for an ad in every page. And it's just like, you can't be teasing people like this, John. I know, I know. I did the same thing yesterday. It was like 25 places where you can retire on $150,000 that are safe. It started at 25. That's what started at number 25. <laughs> Click through them all. Yeah, there you go. All right, John. Well, I, I is there anything you, you'd like to share or say? I know we covered a lot, but I appreciate you going through your career and challenges, talking a little bit about your role at Nextdoor, uh, talking about culture. I think that was important as well. Um, if there's anything else you want to say or chat about, now's your chance. No, I, this was great. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This is... Uh, it's been really, really a great experience. Awesome. Great. Well, I'll give you uh, your Friday back and, and hopefully you have a great weekend. Cheers. Have a great one. Uh, here's John. Take care. Bye-bye. 